Put simply, mergers and acquisitions, M&A, refers to the consolidation of companies. Most firms grow their business in four ways, organically, via bold on acquisitions, by way of alliances, or through strategic acquisitions. Organic growth includes investing in technology, creating new products, and hiring new people, all of which are outside the M&A division's province. Alliances, joint ventures, strategic acquisitions, and mergers are the turf of the M&A division of an investment bank. Bold on acquisitions are those that are within the realm of a company's existing operations. Investment banks with local knowledge might be helpful, but most firms will manage these acquisitions by themselves or with the help of consultants. Alliances, joint ventures, and acquisitions of another business can provide access to a new set of clients or penetrate a new geography more effectively. Larger strategic mergers lead to the consolidation of businesses. Types of M&A and M&A transaction involves an acquirer and a firm that has been targeted by another firm for a takeover. The acquirer's purpose is to gain control of the assets of the target company in order to generate synergies one between the acquirer's assets and those of the target. These transactions are often called mergers, even if they are technically acquisitions. On the other hand, the term acquisition may be used in the context of a financial transaction, a buyout, too when no consolidation of businesses is involved. So what is the precise legal difference between a merger and an acquisition? There are four basic legal procedures that one firm can use to acquire the assets of another firm. Acquisition of the assets of the target only. Acquisition of the shares of the target to get control over the assets. These acquisitions just need the shareholders of the target to agree to sell their shares. A merger including the target company as part of the acquiring company. This requires the authorization of both groups of shareholders. The shareholders of the target to approve its extinction bullet the shareholders of the acquirer because mergers usually result in additional shares being issued at the time of the combination. Consolidation of the two companies. A consolidation is like a merger except that both companies disappear to form a new company. Consolidation is a combination of two companies to form a new company with shares to be issued. In these four types of M&A, the price will be key for the finalization of the transaction. The price is the total amount of consideration paid in all forms in order to acquire the target company or its assets. Acquisitions of the assets or of the target shares can be paid for in cash or in shares. When cash is paid, an acquisition is often called an outright acquisition. When shares are used, it is called a stock swap or an all-equity transaction. A merger is always paid in shares. In all cases, there needs to be evaluation of the consideration. M&A in value creation and physics, critical mass is the minimum mass of fissionable material necessary for a nuclear explosion to take place. In M&A, critical mass is the minimum size a company must reach to better negotiate its purchases of raw materials, to impose selling prices for its products, or to produce at a better unit cost. Mergers create value only when the association of the companies involved makes it possible to reach critical mass, to offer the best products and services, to manufacture them at the best cost, to reach new customers, or to develop new know-how. Many studies by academics and consulting firms, not to mention tons of articles in the business press, explain that mergers are just as likely to destroy shareholder value as to create it. While many acquisitions fail to create value for the acquirer, some do not even create value for the target. Do shareholders of acquiring firms gain from acquisitions? According to a celebrated book on valuation published in 1990, as many as two-thirds of all transactions failed to create value for the acquirers at four. One study of 12,023 acquisitions by public firms from 1980 to 2001 found that the shareholders of these firms lost a total of $218 billion when acquisitions were announced. Small firms gained from acquisitions, so shareholders of small firms gained $8 billion when acquisitions were announced, and shareholders of large firms lost $226 billion. Five on average, acquisitions are professor but in the aggregate they are not. In research published by McKinsey in December 2006, Richard Dobbs, Mark Goldhart, and Hanu Suonia reviewed nearly 1,000 global M&A transactions from 1997 to 2006, comparing share prices two days before and two days after each deal was announced in order to assess the financial market's initial reaction to the deals. They showed that deals during the boom, which began in 2003, created proportionally more value than those before it and that acquiring companies were keeping more of that value for their shareholders. In the current boom, the 
proportion of acquirers that the market believes to be overpaying for deals has averaged 57%, decreasing annually from 63% in 2003 to 56% in 2006. In contrast, from 1997 to 2000, the overall average was 65%, with the level of overpayment increasing significantly, from 54% in 1997 to 73% in 2000. Six, the Boston Consulting Group explains that on average, contrary to academic opinion, acquisitive growth strategies create superior long-term shareholder returns. The BCG has discovered the secret of successful M&A, the method in the madness. Seven, the most experienced M&A players will treat the process in a systematic, industrial manner, pursuing a deal only when the expected returns are above the cost of capital. Three key ingredients for success are strategic focus on growth areas, not targets, valuation discipline, and early cross-functional integration planning. While these might seem like obvious imperatives, many companies ignore them. The M&A disaster, which lasted for three years, 1999-2001, included massive write-offs for AOL Time Warner, eight massive losses for shareholders of JDS Uniphase 9 and Tyco, 10 the ruin of WorldCom, 11 and the collapse of Enron. But these wreckages may be the result of inadequate management, not of the deal per se. According to Wharton Accounting and Finance Professor Robert W. Holthausen, some of the findings on WorldCom indicate that the board sometimes spent only 20 to 30 minutes reviewing a multi-billion dollar acquisition. Meanwhile, many companies, like General Electric and Cisco, benefited from acquisitions. Takeover defenses acquirers can be friendly or hostile. If the board of the target firm resists the takeover attempt, and if the bidder continues to pursue it, the bid is hostile. The resistance of the target's management and board starts with press releases and communications to shareholders. It presents a negative view of the target's management. The resistance can involve many different defense tactics. If the aggression has been anticipated, a potential target may have amended its corporate charter to make a hostile bid more difficult. In the United States, for example, a firm could ask its shareholders for measures like staggering the terms of the board of directors or requiring a supermajority shareholder approval of an acquisition, for example 67% to take control. According to Arturo Burris, Associate Professor of Corporate Finance at Yale School of Management, the most effective defense against hostile takeover bids in the U.S. today is called staggered boards, and practically every company has them. Every year, you can only replace, for example, 10% of the members of the board. This means that a competitor can only acquire effective control after five years have passed. 12 in Europe, amending corporate charters to change majority rules is forbidden, and the line of defense would instead be to increase the equity of the company or to propose to shareholders a share buyback. Once it has become the target of a hostile bid, the target can use defense tactics that read like pages from Harry Potter. The target tries to find a white knight, or it uses a poison pill, or it sells the crown jewels, or it provides golden parachutes, or it finally succumbs to green mail. A white knight is a competing bidder, which can work if the target's board believes that such a dialogue is likely to result in a superior proposal. Poison pills are provisions in the corporate charter that go into effect when there is a hostile takeover. For example, shareholders have the right to buy shares in the company at a big discount, which would make the hostile takeover extremely expensive for the company making the acquisition. Golden parachutes grant generous compensation to the outgoing management of the target firm. Crown jewels are major assets that the target firm's management sells off to keep the bidder away. Finally, with green mail, the target firm buys back its own stock from a potential acquirer at a premium in order to stay independent. Historically, in the United States, about half of hostile Bids have been successful and the target firm has been sold to the hostile bidder. The other half have been unsuccessful and the target remained independent or was sold to a white knight. 13 Hostile bids can turn out to be very expensive. The premium over the target's closing price one day prior to the announcement between 1999 and 2003 was close to 43% on average, 14 whereas friendly acquirers pay just slightly more than 20% to win their target acquisitions. 15 But when they succeed, the shares of hostile cash acquirers often outperform those of friendly cash acquirers. 16 This is a curious result because going hostile makes it difficult to gain information and do due diligence in evaluating the deal. According to Ross, Westerfield, and Jaffe, one explanation is that unfriendly cash bidders are more likely to replace poor management. Merger waves If there is one thing on which everybody can agree, it is that mergers happen in waves. When a consolidation takes place in an industry, it is hard for a competitor not to follow suit. Merger waves can engulf the whole economy. According to Dr. Neil H. Jacoby, 
former dean of UCLA and a member of President Eisenhower's Council of Economic Advisors, merger waves can come along with the market boom, but also with new technology developments. They are, in his words, an accumulation of perceived but unexplored profit-making opportunities for enlarging the scale of enterprises, which have arisen from basic technological and social changes and a buoyant capital market with a strong demand for new securities. 17 nearly 30 years later, Andre Schleifer and Robert W. Vishnay give a quite similar explanation. 18 They present a model of mergers and acquisitions based on stock market misevaluations of the combining firms. The key ingredients of their model are the relative valuations of the merging firms, the planning horizon of their respective managers, and the market's perception of the synergies from the combination. The first wave of M&A in the United States took place from 1897 to 1902, beginning in 1895 along with a strong stock market rise and peaking in 1899 when there were 1,200 mergers. The focus of this early merger wave was on transportation, railroads and communications, telegraph and telephone companies, as well as steel and rubber. These were integration deals merging many one-plant manufacturing companies into multi-plant entities. For example, U.S. Steel, U.S. Rubber, and American, Ken.19, the second merger wave in the United States built up between 1924 and 1930, peaking in 1929 with 1,250 mergers. The basis of the second merger wave was the same, but in different forms, transportation, cars and roads and communications, radio and national advertising, which involved brand names and chain stores. These coincided with a booming stock market, which lasted from 1921 to September 1929.20. The third merger wave arose between 1965 and 1968, with two 2,500 mergers. This was the zenith of diversification, and it was driven by a sense of managerial control, leading to the foundation of large-scale conglomerates, ITT, Golf and Western, Fiat in Italy, Schneider in France. With the help of computers, management had become a science, at least, this is what Jacobi believed at the time. Point to one, the large conglomerates paid for most of these acquisitions in overvalue shares. The fourth wave occurred between 1986 and 1989, and is generally seen as the unraveling of the third. Financial acquisitions and LBOs, driven by Hansen in England, KKR in the United States, and other financial acquirers broke up the conglomerates created in the late 1960s. These acquisitions were driven by the failure of the conglomerates to deliver value, and they occurred when the value of the conglomerate was deemed inferior to the value of its components. Two-thirds of them were paid for in cash and financed by debt. This wave was associated with a rise in stock prices. The fifth wave was the internet stocks and the new economy bubble of 1997 to 2000. According to an article published by the Wharton Business School, companies spent $3.5 trillion on acquisitions between 1992 and 2000, making those eight years the most active M&A period in history. Most of the mergers took place in the same industry. In large part, M&A transactions involve transportation of data and telecom companies. Some 58% of the mergers, by value, were paid for in stock. There is little that an investment bank can do to make a market upbeat. But the lesson of the past three merger waves is that a merger must provide synergies if it is to have a chance to be successful. Thus, the strategy of investment banks nowadays is to focus on the strategic rationale for the contemplated merger, or at least it should be. The role of matchmaker the investment bank acting on the buy side of an acquisition will spend a lot of time analyzing the strategic setting of the buyer and of the target to identify potential strategic motives for the deal. The banker tries to identify how a deal might fit in with the company's strategy. Typically, the banker will focus on the following six essential questions. What is the client's M&A strategy? How does each specific target enhance our client's strategic objectives? What does our client need from a potential partner? What does the target need from our client? Where are the synergies? What are the risks? If he is convinced that a deal would make sense, the banker will have to consider how to approach the potential client. First off, it's important to figure what is the best contact point for the target firm. The shareholders, top management, the corporate development team, 23 the operational executives at a subsidiary. Once the banker has honed in on the contact point, a meeting can be organized. The banker then needs to find an angle for the target, access, knowledge or a special know-how. Trusted advisor on negotiating and or on structuring. Why might the target be in play? There may be, for example, a favorable ownership structure, or the company may have signaled that it is looking for a buyer. Finally, 
How should that builder approach the target? As friend or foe? The timetable for an M&A transaction, the 2003 merger between two biotech companies, IDEC and Biogen, illustrates the typical timetable for a merger. In the fall of 2002, the chairman and CEOs of IDEC and of Biogen discussed the possibility of exploring a potential strategic collaboration between their two companies. During the course of the collateral ration negotiations, IDEC asked its financial advisor, Merrill Lynch, to assist in evaluating whether a possible business combination with Biogen or with one or more other entities would enhance stockholder value. On the surface, it appears that it was the Senior management of the two firms that first discussed the possible idea of exploring a potential strategic collaboration. But actually the deal may first have come from a banker's imagination. The investment bank retained by a client in an M&A transaction will typically start assessing the strategic rationale for the merger and deliver its analysis to the board. On December 18, 2002, IDEC's board of directors was presented with a preliminary analysis of a business combination with Biogen, prepared by Merrill Lynch. The presentation included background information about Biogen and strategic rationales for a combination with Biogen. If the analysis confirms that the deal's business rationale makes sense, the board gives the green light to expand the discussions. IDEC's board of directors agreed that members of IDEC's executive management should expand discussions with Biogen. IDEC also began consulting with its legal and financial advisors about a possible business combination with Biogen. Consultations with these advisors by IDEC continued throughout the remaining business combination discussions. The first meetings between the two companies' representatives and their advisors are held to exchange information relating to the organizational structure of a combined company and to discuss the strategic rationale for a potential business combination. On January 31, 2003, Biogen retained Goldman Sachs as its financial advisor in connection with a possible strategic transaction between Biogen and IDEC. At a regularly scheduled meeting of Biogen's board of directors on February 7, 2003, there was a general discussion of the strategic rationale for a possible business combination between IDEC and Biogen. In order to exchange meaningful information, the parties sign a non-disclosure agreement. A non-disclosure agreement was signed by the parties on February 11, 2003, and representatives of IDEC and Biogen and their outside legal, accounting, and financial advisors met on February 11th and February 12th to present information relating to their products, manufacturing operations, and finances. Then the discussions concerning alternative merger structures and valuations, the financial and market implications of a transaction, begin. The two teams discuss the potential business combination, including management organization and structure. The two boards independently keep close control of the discussions. They meet regularly, often every two or three weeks. The financial advisors present their view to the respective firm's board of directors. There can be joint meetings between the two firms. Between March 17th and March 20, 2003, members of IDEC's and Biogen's executive managements met with certain members of the other company's board of directors. The meetings focused on the strategic rationale for a potential business combination and the ramifications of structuring the transaction as a merger of equals. A merger of equals is a combination of two firms that have approximately the same pre-merger market capitalization. Ownership of the new entity is to be split approximately 50-50 by each company's shareholders, and it is characterized by approximately equal board representation in the merge firm. The due diligence process is conducted by the buyer to investigate and review the operations of the seller. Unfortunately, extensive due diligence may not be done in those situations where it is most needed, or in hostile takeovers. For a merger of equals, the due diligence is reciprocal. IDEC's management and its financial and legal advisors met on March 5, 2003, to discuss due diligence topics and the due diligence process, financial terms, and possible structures of the potential business combination. At the same time, members of IDEC's executive management toured Biogen's manufacturing facilities and discussed manufacturing, financial, and other integration issues with members of Biogen's executive management. A data room where all economic, financial, and legal information concerning the target company is available is usually set up. Each company made available to the other party a data room containing legal and business due diligence materials beginning on April 2, 2003. The final phase is the negotiations between the two parties leading to the pricing of the transaction or the determination of an exchange ratio if it is a merger proposal. The price will depend on the synergies resulting from the combination. During the remainder of April and continuing through May, the parties and their legal and financial advisors continued their due diligence and engaged in negotiations with respect to a merger agreement, 
during which the discussions focused on organizational matters and possible synergies that could result from a business combination. The purpose of the discussions is to determine the price to be paid, the mode of payment, and other terms of the deal. Here the bank may play an active role in the negotiation, or can act as a backup to prepare the field on valuation, for example, or on the structuring of a transaction. During the next two weeks, in early June, the parties negotiated the final terms of a merger agreement and, in particular, the final share exchange ratio. These discussions prepare for the special board meetings to consider adoption of the merger agreement and approval of the transactions contemplated by the merger agreement. At these meetings, which are held separately, each bank will render to the board of directors its oral opinion, subsequently confirmed by delivery of a written opinion, that, as of that date and based upon and subject to the factors and assumptions set forth in the opinion, the price of the acquisition or the exchange ratio in the proposed merger is fair from a financial point of view to the holders of its client's common stock. Following the approvals of the merger and related transactions by their respective boards of directors, IDEC and Biogen executed the merger agreement on June 20, 2003. How to identify a prospective client so far we have considered the case of a banker acting for an acquirer. But a banker can act for a seller as well. In addition, she may have asked for the deal, or she may have been asked by the client. From an origination perspective, one can position any M&A transaction in the 2x2 two two matrix. In the matrix in Table 14-1, the rows identify the role the bank played in getting the mandate. Did the banker have to persuade the client that there was a worthwhile M&A transaction to be done, a push, or did the client come to hire the banker to do a transaction, a pull? The columns in the matrix refer to which side of the deal the bank was involved with in the transaction. Was the bank working on the buy side, helping the client to acquire a business, or on the sell side, advising on the disposal of assets? The strategies in each quadrant are clearly very different. Push on the buy side The top left quadrant in the matrix refers to the situation where the investment bank approaches a prospective client with the suction that it take over a company. The bank may have an existing relationship with the client, or the client may be a new client. It is easier to push an idea if there is a relationship of trust between the banker and the client, although one can certainly jeopardize a good relationship with a bad idea. Normally knowledge of the industry will not be enough, the client knows the story better. The banker needs to know something that the client does not know, or that he does not appreciate fully. The bank may have information about a target, for example, why the company is in play. Or the banker can have a piece of news that the client has not fully understood. When Westinghouse Electric Corporation made public its interest in the media company CBS in 1995, it became quite obvious that it would dispose of its other assets in the power generation industry. An industrial giant for much of the 20th century, Westinghouse was seeking to transform itself into a major media company with its purchase of CBS. That was a good angle for a banker to use in testing the appetites of the various potential acquirers in the power generation businesses. He needed to approach the European nuclear and energy manufacturing companies, British Nuclear Fuels, Siemens AG from Germany, and GEC Alsom and Franatome from France. Indeed, Westinghouse changed its name to CBS Corporation in late 1997 and began to sell all of its non-entertainment assets. It sold its non-nuclear power generation business to Siemens and its nuclear business to British Nuclear Fuels. Pull on the buy side This is an easier situation to be in. The client comes to the investment bank and asks whether it should go for an M&A or for help with an acquisition. The client may recognize the need for an acquisition search but not be able to do it alone. So the investment bank searches for a suitable partner based on both the profile of the client and its ideas and ambitions regarding growth. The client may come because of its relationship with the bank. Or it can be the bank's strategy to develop a relationship that will lead to its being selected as advisor in an M&A transaction. We saw the case of Merrill Lynch being asked by the drug company Sanofi to be its exclusive advisor in 2002. We also discussed the development of the relationship between Goldman Sachs and some of its Chinese clients. There may be occasions when the trusted long-term advisor has a conflict. In this case, the client may hold a beauty parade, with each pitch being evaluated against well-articulated criteria. We will see later how Renault chose Merrill Lynch to help it work on the acquisition of Nissan through an informal beauty parade. Sometimes the client will choose the bank so that the target does not take that bank as an advisor. This often happened in the late 1990s and the early part of this century with Goldman Sachs or Lazard. This is when the reputation of the bank is the best wedge for M&A. More recently, 
Many clients have come to an investment bank or a large commercial bank, asking it to commit capital. Push on the sell side The top right quadrant includes approaches to a prospective client with the suggestion that it sell its company or part of it. More frequently, the push-sell strategy will apply to the sale of a subsidiary. It is, as a rule, quite difficult to go to a company's management and suggest it sell the entire company. Often the client is a shareholder of the company to be sold. The bank will lose the client after the sale, and it may not get the acquirer. It may also be a good strategy, when one learns that a firm is looking for a target, to go and see one of the possible targets and propose to help that firm in case it is contacted by the potential acquirer. Pull on the sell side This quadrant covers the cases of a possible sale, acquisition, merger, or joint venture. The client comes to the investment bank and asks whether it should look for a partner. In the financial press, this is tactfully described as a strategic review. The firm is looking for strategic partners, but the decision to sell has already been made. The focus will be on the valuation of the company with a view to establishing the appropriate price. Investment banks may propose to organize an auction sale or dual-track arrangement. A dual-track arrangement is an attempt to sell a company to another firm or to financial investors while preparing to have shares offered and listed on the stock exchange as a backup. You may remember that this was what MGM, Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs, and Merrill Lynch proposed to L for the disposal of its U.S. subsidiary Texas, Golf.24 transaction fees for some mysterious reason, there is very little documentation on M&A fees. One may mention the famous 54321 Lehman formula.25 but this formula is used only in the middle market if it is used at all. In research published in 2005, Terry Walter, Alfred Yawson, and Charles P. W. Young discovered interesting statistics for all deals where an advisor is hired, using a comprehensive sample of 15,422 M&A transactions announced in the United States between January 1980 and December 2003.26 on average, M&A fees represent about 1% of the value of the deals, whether the bank is on the sell side or the buy side. The difference between the mean, around 1%, and the median, around 0.5%, suggests that the fee level for acquirer's demon is he's steeply in proportion to the size of the deal, see Table 14.2. It may be more profitable for a bank to do 10 small deals than one one. Here's an example. A bank may garner a 1% fee on a $200 million merger, whether it is on the side of the acquirer or that of the target. In a $2 billion deal, that drops to 0.4%. Thus, 10 $200 million deals can generate more than twice the fees earned from a single $2 billion transaction. On mega deals, above $25 billion, the fee may drop to 0.001%. These skewed statistics illustrate three deficiencies in the fee structure. Ideally, the fee should motivate the bankers to do their best for their client, to help acquirers to pay the smallest price and targets to get the highest price. Of course, identical fee structures for the buyer and the seller cannot provide the right incentives in both cases. The fee as a percentage of deal value should be different on the buy and sell sides. The statistics, however, show that this is not the case, on average. The fee should be based not on the total value of the transaction, but on the value produced by the bank. This is far from being the case in practice. Finally, and this is the most important, the fee is due even if it would have been in the best interest of the client not to do a transaction. All incentives work to push the banker to close a transaction, his reputation, his bonus, and his instinct. Unfortunately for the clients, it would often be in their best interests not to do a transaction.